0: you can join me in your Bibles to uh, the book of Romans chapter 14. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can find one under some seats nearby, and Romans 14 is on page 948 in those Bibles. Well, next week, uh, I'm excited to start a new sermon series called Unfolding Grace. We'll be taking six weeks to move through the story of the Bible, and we're doing this to see how our stories fit in God's larger story of grace, the true story of the world. One of the most important things we can do as Christians is to immerse ourselves in the story of the Bible, which is the true story of the world, and and let that inform our sense of identity and purpose. Who are we and why are we here? Those aren't just general questions that we can get abstract answers to, but we find our meaning within a story. And so, it's a unified story, and so we want to get a sense of the whole. It's one of the best things you can do um, as a Christian. So, Actually, and if you're not a Christian, if you're exploring what it would mean to follow Jesus, one of the best things you can do is get a sense of the sweep of history as Christians believe God has revealed it in the Bible. So I wanna encourage you as we anticipate that series to consider a reading plan for this series, especially if you're not having a regular rhythm in God's word or don't have a particular reading plan you're following right now. Last year, Crossway Publishers published a book of guided scripture readings called Unfolding Grace. It's 40 scripture readings that hit the high key moments in the Bible to take you through the storyline of the Bible, seeing God's unfolding plan of grace. So you can get that online, or we have some copies at the resource corner, and what you can do is there's 40 readings. So through this series, do one a day, or one most days. And then by the time we're through this series, you will have worked your way through 40 of the key moments in the Bible's story as well. But before that series this morning, we're going to consider the first half of Romans 14. 14. And this is an incredibly important chapter for every Christian and every church to grasp because this shows us how to relate to one another and how to feel toward one another, how to speak about and to one another when we disagree on any number of topics. This sermon partly grew out of some discussions we had as elders last year. Last year, we read a book called Finding the Right Hills to Die On. It's a great book. We have some copies available at the resource corner as well, and it helps Christians understand the difference and think through the difference between the topics we need to hold with a closed fist and the topics we need to have an open hand with. And there's some doctrines and practices that Christians must unite around, and there are other things that we have to create space for one another to disagree on. We not only have to agree to disagree, we need to learn how to honor and love one another and accept one another. So the elders wanted to find just ways we can keep encouraging one another to pursue unity this way. So I'm not giving this message out of a sense that there's some kind of crisis problem. So this isn't a response to a problem, it's really affirming what the Lord has given us in a gospel culture, and we all have room to grow in this area, and this topic. And so we want to keep being intentional about cultivating a gospel culture, culture of accepting one another— as God in Christ has accepted us. So this is really the heart of Romans 14, first 12 verses. So let's read God's word together. So you can find Romans chapter 14 and we'll do the first 12 verses. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he made anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats Christ died and lived again that he might be Lord of both the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Let's pray together and ask the Lord's help. Our Father, we come to you uh, confidently in the name of Jesus. Thank you for your acceptance of us through Jesus and by faith in him. Thank you for giving us your word. And so we pray that in this time together, you would help us to think rightly about your word and understand it, help our hearts to engage and feel rightly in response and help us to live um, sacrificial lives of worship um, and love for you and our neighbors in response. We pray that you would do this only you can. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, Romans 14, this is about how to deal with those who disagree on non-essentials. We should expect, as Christians, to disagree about many things. Think about just a few kinds of people and a few kinds of situations. So Sally, if your name is Sally in this room or watching or the fellowship, I don't have you in mind, Sally in general, thinks that church services— should look historic and traditional. Churches should only sing hymns. They should use an organ or piano, and it shouldn't be very loud, or at least just the organ. She thinks the pastor should wear a suit to show reverence for the preaching of God's Word, and that people should really wear their best attire on Sundays for the same reasons. Now, Joe comes in and sits down next to her, and he thinks that churches should fit the trends of the time. He thinks music should sound like modern bands. He thinks that, in his particular bands that he has in mind, uh, he thinks that loud music and dark lighting really are what we need to produce an experience that we need um, these days. And that's what he's looking for. Now think about a different category. Debbie uh, thinks that Christians shouldn't smoke. Uh, she thinks that Christians should not drink alcohol ever. She thinks that uh, rock music is inappropriate, same with rap, and that they shouldn't hang out where any of these kinds of things are going on. Now, Ted, he thinks that it's fine to enjoy alcohol in moderation, and he likes to have an occasional cigar. Now, here's how Romans 14 helps us. The issue is actually not that we disagree, but how we disagree. Christians will disagree about a lot of things, and that's fine. We need to be careful that we don't reject one another over differences and non-essentials. So the main point in this text is three words, and it's welcome one another. So even if we have differences, we don't want our opinions to be a source of division. Don't treat your preferences as essentials. Instead, welcome one another. Now, God has given us, in measure, a gospel culture, right? A culture that is shaped by His grace toward us. God, uh, the greatest news in the world is that God has a heart of love for sinners, and He welcomes us through Jesus, who died for us and rose again. Now, we take that grace that we receive in Him, and we begin to be transformed by it and reflect that to one another, not just in one-on-one dealings, but it can shape the whole culture of a community. And we're grateful to receive this by God's grace and the power of the Holy Spirit, and we want to guard that. And so, one way we cultivate this, one way we guard this, is by letting the gospel shape how we treat one another when we disagree about preferences or opinions or secondary matters. So, let's walk through this text in Um, a couple parts, and then consider implications for us. So first, the problem of quarreling about non-essentials. It's the first three verses here. And then second, how the gospel creates a culture of unity instead of that. So the problem of quarreling about non-essentials, then how the gospel creates a culture of unity, and then we'll consider what it looks like for us today. So first, the problem of quarreling about non-essentials. Now Paul introduces this main topic and the main topic here in verse 1. could read it with me. As for the one who's weak in faith, welcome him or her, but not to quarrel over opinions. So, Paul is concerned here with Christians who are or are tempted to criticize and reject other Christians over secondary matters. He says this quarreling is about opinions. That can be translated disputable thoughts. So, these are not core doctrines, Their ideas or thoughts or opinions that are disputable. And some people are being critical of others who don't agree with them. Verse 2 introduces us to one of the specific topics. It has to do with food. One person believes he made anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Verse 5 shows us that this also involves special days as something to disagree about. It says, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. And later on the chapter, he brings in this topic of drinking wine as well. Some think it's okay for them to drink, some don't. It's in verse 21. Now, most students of this text recognize that the division here was probably largely, uh, though not exclusively, along ethnic lines. Some of these Christians came out of a Jewish background, some came from a Gentile or non Jewish background. And so they have very different cultures and very different religious backgrounds. And they're all now a church in Rome trying to get along. So the Jewish Christians had these traditions, centuries-long traditions, that were very important to them about food and special days. They were deeply meaningful. They were part of how they experienced life and understanding the world that God made and how they practiced their religion. And now they're in a church with a lot of Gentile Christians who don't really care and they don't really need to care. So, Paul names these two groups. He calls some weak in faith, then later he calls the other strong. Now, when he says that some are weak in faith, he's not saying they don't have, like, much faith in Jesus in general, Um, nor is he saying that they're morally weak, as if they're just more prone to some temptations and struggles in, in certain matters. No, really, this is about, the weakness is about a sense of confidence before God to do certain things. That's what this has to do with, a weakness in confidence toward God with their ability to do certain things. So, they're weak because they haven't been able to connect the gospel and the new freedom they have to these kinds of issues in life. They're used to doing certain traditions and customs, and they still feel bound to them in certain ways. And so, Jesus has come and given them a new freedom, and they still feel like they need these traditions to be honored, either traditions that were in the Old Testament or traditions that were developed in their culture in keeping with some of those things. So, the weak are probably mainly Jewish Christians here. They believe the essentials of the faith. They're not outright legalists. Paul has really strong words for those kinds of people in other places in the New Testament, but they're treating non-essentials, as if they're closer to essentials. They're bothered that their customs and traditions aren't being honored, and it's leading them to have this temptation to reject or judge other people. Now, the strong are those who don't feel compelled to follow these customs. They're probably Gentile Christians or the Jewish Christians like Paul who have learned to connect the dots and let it affect their emotions and practice, and they know they aren't bound to these traditions and customs. Now, this is where the text gives us profound wisdom for dealing with disagreements. Paul doesn't, and this is why it's so helpful for us, because we may not debate these same issues, but we do have our own disagreements. Paul doesn't just say, listen, I heard that you guys are disagreeing about these things. Let me just settle it for you. I actually have the answer. Eating meat is fine. Drinking wine is fine. Observing days is just preferences. That's actually what Paul thinks. He says later, he sides with the strong. But he doesn't say that to settle the matter. Instead, Paul deals with what's actually breaking the unity here. On the surface, it looks like the division is there because there's a disagreement on these things, and so someone just needs to come and just settle it for everyone. But that's actually not true. Churches can have lots of different opinions about secondary things, but what breaks unity uh, most significantly is a certain kind of attitude— And Paul says that those on either side of the issue have a unique temptation. The strong are tempted to despise the weak. The weak are tempted to judge or condemn the strong. Look at verse 3 again. Let not the one who eats, right? The strong here who knows it's fine to eat. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains... Who's sensitive to these kinds of things, pass judgment on the one who eats. Paul's giving us a profound psychology here. The strong are those who know they have this gospel freedom to take or leave these customs, they don't feel bound to it. And Paul says, You have a unique temptation. You're tempted to despise others. And that would come from a posture of pride, superiority, looking down on the weak, right? saying, oh, come on, stop it with your scruples. Quit pushing your preferences. Get over it. What about the weak and their customs? Well, their temptation is to judge the strong. They would perhaps say of the strong, you just don't take holiness seriously. These things are important. Like, we've been doing these things for centuries. Um, You don't take following Jesus seriously. I'm right and you're wrong. There's this other sense of superiority there. So really the same roots there, right? Prideful superiority, condemning or despising someone else. And this leads to the quarreling about non-essentials. So the problem isn't that they disagreed, it's how they would disagree. The problem comes when we despise or judge those who disagree with our preferences. So let's move second Verses four to twelve, how does the gospel create a culture of unity? Paul again doesn't just say, Here's the right answer. Now, if you can all just agree, we'll be able to move on. He doesn't do that because the deepest problem is this attitude. They're they're tempted to be annoyed by one another. They're separating from one another in their hearts, which could lead to bigger separation. So what then is the answer? What do they need? Well, they need to remember and apply the gospel to their attitudes. When we trust in Jesus, we learn, that, we learn who He is. We learn what He's done for us. And there's implications for all of life in light of that. And so Paul connects the truths that we know about Jesus, who He is, what He's done, what He will do, to this very practical matter. The Christian life, in large part, is growing in learning to apply the gospel to every facet of life. And so, Paul's doing that with this topic in particular, like he often does with different topics. So, let's consider these three truths. The first one is justification. Verse 1, Paul says, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. So, justification is related to this word for welcome or accept. God justifies or declares us righteous and accepts us by grace through faith. We are unrighteous in ourselves with our works considered but the good news of God's grace is that He accepts us for Jesus' sake. And so, Paul says, verse 1, notice this word that shows up, welcome or accept. As for the one who's weak in faith, welcome him. Later in verse, or chapter 15, verse 7, he says, welcome one another. That's the main command of the whole text. And then now, at the end of verse 3, listen to the reason why they should welcome one another. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. We just considered that. Well, why? For God has welcomed him. So, God has welcomed every believer in Jesus. He has justified and declared righteous every believer in Jesus. We could also think of this as the doctrine of adoption. God has adopted into his family, into his heart, into his home, all who trust in Jesus And now Paul says in verse 3 that we are to welcome one another because God has welcomed us. And God has welcomed that other person. So in other words, here's what this is saying. God welcomes every Christian to his heart. So we now are called to view other Christians how God views them. We're now to treat other Christians how God treats them. God doesn't despise or condemn them for these non-essential matters. So you don't despise and condemn one another for those non-essential matters. You get the connection there? So they're tempted to despise and condemn, and Paul thinks, well, let's think about the gospel. God's not despising or condemning them. He's not despising or condemning you. So treat one another how God treats us in Christ. Don't, in other words, don't reject in your heart those whom Jesus is happy to welcome. And by the way, Jesus, you know, I think about this this week, Jesus probably disagrees with me about all sorts of things that I think are really important, that I think I'm pretty close to right on. And it's really important for us to recognize that, right? That Jesus probably disagrees with us about all sorts of stuff. I mean, i change my mind over time on things. Um, And how does Jesus treat me? Right? Okay, second truth. The Lordship of Christ. Jesus is the Lord of other Christians, which means... We are not. Verse 4. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It's before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. And then in verses 7 to 9, he expands on this, and he says that Jesus died and rose to be the world's true king. Lord over your life and Lord over beyond this life after death. He's the Lord of all his people in life and death. So here's what he's saying. Listen, you're condemning people or tempted to condemn people for over non-essentials. You are acting like you are the Lord and master of these people. But their master is Jesus, not you. And he approves of them. Now, the assumption here is that we're hoping the best in one another. That's where he goes in verse 5 here. People are doing this in thanks to the Lord on non-essential matters, and the Lord approves of them. So, the other Christians you're disregarding, they're all, they already have a Lord, and it's not you, he's saying. It's Jesus, so you don't need to worry about telling everyone how to live in the non-essentials. I worked at Best Buy for a couple years, and was a department senior in my department, digital imaging, and so I had a level of authority in my department and could kind of shape the schedules and what things done and how we organize things, how we display things a bit. Now, if I walked across the store to the uh, car stereo department and I started telling them how to organize their displays and move their wires around, they'd rightly say, like, what are you you doing, right? Um, I have a supervisor, and it's not you. And my supervisor says this is fine. So move along, right? It's essentially what's going on here. Um, Paul's saying they already have a master and it's not you. So move along. Third truth is the coming judgment. We'll all give an account to God, every matter will be brought before him. So we then don't need to play the judge ahead of time for people. Verse 10. Why do you pass judgment on your brother or you? Why do you despise your brother? Again, this, this judging, condemning, despising issue. For, here's the reason, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Right? Everyone will give an account to God, so we don't need to make them give an account to us. God is the judge, so we don't need to be. So, see how practical theology is here. Paul takes these three doctrines, justification by faith, the lordship of Jesus, In the coming judgment. And he says that these doctrines, if we don't just kind of believe them on paper, but get them into our head and our heart and see how they apply, uh, will actually help us get along with one another and love one another. So Paul's saying, listen, you aren't getting along. Here's what you need. You need to remember Jesus died to accept his people, and he rose again to be Lord of his people, and he's coming again to judge. And if you really believe that, let's just think that through then let's accept one another as Jesus accepts one another. Uh, let's stop despising them. Let's, not st- let's stop playing Lord. Jesus is. So let's stop condemning one another. All right, now finally, what then does this look like for us today? Well, one of the best ways to cultivate unity is to distinguish essentials from non-essentials. And this is so important, not just in the church, but in family life and in friendships. Friendships and in political conversations. But thinking here about these, this kind of realm that Paul's talking about, one of the most um, helpful illustrations I've heard um, is with triage. So, you may be familiar with medical triage. So, in an ER, if you have a crowded ER room or an emergency room, and um, there's all sorts of people with different situations, you can't get to them all at once, and you have to have some way of prioritizing. And you're not going to treat the person who potentially has a broken wrist that's in pain the same, in this, with the same priority or level of urgency as you would treat someone who is just shot and brought in right? So, you have to prioritize what's most urgent, what's most important. Um, So, that's helpful because there's some similarity to what we need to do with doctrines and practices. There are essential beliefs and practices, and there are non-essential beliefs and practices. And we have to know the difference in order to cultivate unity when we disagree with somebody. Romans 14 deals with what Paul calls opinions, right? In verse 1, or disputable thoughts, Disputable matters. So, this is about things that we've seen like eating meat, drinking wine, observing days. They're not essential beliefs or practices. You can agree to disagree on these kinds of matters. So, here's one way to think about it. We've shared this before. One way to think about it is to think of three shelves. You have a first shelf and a second shelf and a third shelf. So, let's think about the top shelf as the shelf for the essentials. These are first-order doctrines and practices. So think about doctrines that would go here on the top shelf. These would be those doctrines that are most closely related to the nature of God and the gospel. Um, So, for example, Paul addresses all sorts of issues in the uh, letter to uh, the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, and he's dealing with really important stuff in there. And then he gets to chapter 15, and he says, I delivered to you that which is of first importance, and it's the gospel, that Christ died for our sins, and he was buried, and he rose again, and he appeared to many. That's of first importance. Other things are important, but there's some things that are of first importance there. And so we could also put Jesus's person and work in there, the doctrine of the Trinity in there, Father, Son, and Spirit, eternally existing as one God in these three persons. So, what about ethical practices? Those are some doctrines. We need to do this for ethics as well. The Bible is clear that salvation involves a turning, a repentance and faith, a turning away from sin and a trusting in Jesus. It's not just affirming true things in our head. It's actually following Jesus with all that we are. And so, here's some questions to ask to determine what kinds of things belong in this top, on this top shelf three questions to ask. One, you get us a question like, is this clearly commanded for New Testament Christians? It's just a simplified way to do it. Is, this a, is there a clear command on this, unambiguous, in the New Testament for Christians? Another question would be, is this something that the New Testament says could be the reason to have someone removed from the church, and therefore you can't affirm their profession of faith anymore? Or is this something that really just calls into question, a similar to the second question there, calls into question whether or not someone is a Christian and following Jesus? They say they're following Jesus, but they're so blatantly disobeying Him in this area um, that there's a disconnect there. So, for example, here's just a list of concerns uh, from Paul in 1 Corinthians. First Corinthians 6, verses 9 to 10, he says this, "'Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God?' "'Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God.'" So to list. He's not saying that someone who commits one of those sins at a certain time is all of a sudden they've lost their salvation, and they can't be saved. This is a characteristic of life here. These kinds of people who are just not following Jesus, but fine with this stuff, um, they won't inherit the kingdom of God, because to inherit the kingdom of God means you follow Jesus. You trust Him, and He changes you. So, I know a lot of people are writing articles and books these days, picking a couple of those and saying that they're actually not important. They're just maybe secondary or below. We can agree to disagree. And so, I think this is where we even need some courage today. So, I agree with uh, Vaughn Roberts, a pastor and author who wrote this. If Paul requires serious church discipline in the face of ongoing, unrepentant sexual sin, and if sexual immorality, including homosexual activity, excludes people from the kingdom of God, these are not issues over which Christians can have two positions of integrity. These are not of second-order issues where we can disagree but continue to live in fellowship. This means that while unity is very important, unity, or not all unity is good. In other words, unity is around these central doctrines and practices. So, you know, we put human dignity in this category, uh, sanctity of life, God's creating all men and women in His image, and designing gender, sexuality, marriage, importance of ethnic harmony, and so forth. Now, what about this second shelf? These are second order issues. These are not essential for salvation. They aren't these core doctrines and practices, but they are important. We can disagree with them as Christians, but they're important for the church to have uh, some measure of agreement on in order to function well. So here are four doctrines and practices that would typically go on a second shelf one would be the practice of baptism, another would be the doctrine of God's sovereignty and salvation. That God chooses those whom He would save. Another would be the roles of men and women in the church and home. Um, That God has created all women and men equal in dignity, but there's different roles. Um, And the way that the church is governed. There's going to be disagreement on all three of these, or all four of these topics. And Christians can hold uh, certain different views on those matters. But they're important to have some unity together on in order to function well as a church. Now, some churches expect all members to agree on all four of those. Um, matters. So, for our church, though, we don't require that. We're requiring unity on essentials, um, but we do recognize that even though we don't need to have unity in agreement um, on those second, secondary matters, we do think it's important for elders to be united on those things. They're reflective in our teaching and our practice as a church, so we practice believer's baptism meaning baptism is for those who believe in Jesus. We teach that God uh, is sovereign in His grace in saving people. He initiates salvation. We teach that men and women are equal in dignity and value before God and in the world, and yet there's, God's made us different, and so we have different roles in the church and home. And we believe that the church should be led by elders. Those aren't essential, so we, we believe that you can disagree with other Christians um, on these matters. It, disagreeing doesn't mean that they're violating a, a fundamental of the faith that would call their salvation into question or anything like that. Christians can disagree, but we do think they're important, and so we've, we think we should be unified as elders and in teaching here. Now, let's talk about the third shelf. What's on this third shelf, the bottom shelf? Well, these are the things that can be important, so it's not saying that none of these things are important, um, but they're mainly preferences, or opinions, or various degrees of wisdom reasoning. Um, You you get to the conclusions through various degrees of wisdom reasoning, uh, or matters of conscience. They may be rooted in biblical principles, uh, but they're debatable. And so, this is really the category Paul's addressing here in Romans 14. This is where we need to be open-minded and open-hearted with one another. So, let me give a couple examples here. Let's think about uh, Sundays together. Here are questions that we ask on this third shelf. What kind of music should we have when we gather together as a church? Uh, Should we have hymns or newer songs, exclusively one, a mix? What time should we meet? Should it be at 8.30 in the morning? Should it be at 11? Should we meet actually just in the afternoon or the evening as a church rather than Sunday morning? What Bible translation should we use? Is the King James the only one we should use or their flexibility here? What kind of clothes should we wear? Should it be our best? Can it be casual? Should it be casual? I remember when I started working with college students, at a church. One of the uh, older men in the church came up to me when he found out that I had this role, and he very passionately told me about his concern for how younger people these days and college students um, aren't wearing nice clothes, and in particular, nice shoes. He said it used to be that we wear nice brown or black shoes on Sundays, and he was very upset about this. Um, And he wanted me to know, since I was going to have some influence with the college students, And he's very passionate. Um, And actually, I don't think I'd ever met this man before. Like, he he wanted to talk to me about this uh, and only about this. And I remember thinking at the time, um, you know, I was wearing nice brown shoes that day, but I kind of wished that I wasn't, you know? Um, There's nothing close to a Bible verse on those matters. Let's think about theology. What's your view of the millennium? Right? The <clears throat> Revelation twenty talks about this thousand year reign of Christ. Is that happening now? Is it in the future? What's going on with that? Do you think that people can speak in tongues today or not? Is that a continuing gift of the Spirit? Should we practice Lent together? Does Genesis one describe the creation of the world in six literal twenty four hour period days, or is there and it was sometime in the past six to ten thousand years, or is there some poetic symbolism? at work here questions that would be again not that they're not important but they're not first or second order here let's think about family topics how should parents school their children some think that public school is the only option if we care about the world to be missional others think homeschooling is the only option if we are going to take seriously our role as parents in educating our children others think private school is the only way and i've said this before my family, we do all of them, so you can't pin me or think that I have one that I think that we should do as a church. We, we, do, we mix and match. Um, what about nap philosophies for babies? You're laughing because you know. Some people can be pretty passionate about this. And again, I'm not saying there's nothing wrong with finding wisdom and an experience and commending it to others, right? Especially if someone's having a hard time. But the, the passion to treat a third-order issue as if it's a first or second is really the, what makes us laugh here, right? Because it's in this category. Again, third quarter, this isn't like the garbage can category. It's a shelf, right? It can, it can even be important. Uh, but it just doesn't matter to the level of judging and despising people um, for what they do. How about trick-or-treating, celebrating Halloween in certain ways? How about individual topics? Is smoking cigars okay? Should Christians be okay with drinking alcohol or getting tattoos? or reading Harry Potter, or buying an expensive car? What about responses to the pandemic? Should people get vaccines or not? Should we wear masks in public or not? I mean, there's various issues involved here, and it can be complicated, right? Because there's wisdom reasoning, uh, the command to love our neighbor. We're trying to work that out in some of these ways. Some, all, a lot of these topics are things that are important to think through and have different opinions on. The point is, these are issues, though, that we can agree to disagree on with open-heartedness toward one another, uh, rather rather than despising or condemning one another. That's really what Romans 14 is about, right? It's not about caring about these things. It's despising or condemning others, having that kind of passion and sense of superiority develop about these things. So let's just wrap up with three recommendations. First, let's keep learning to distinguish between the essentials and the non-essentials. Uh, We want to have a gospel culture as a church, and one way to do that is to keep the gospel and those things that are most closely tied to the gospel and being a follower of Jesus at the center. And then let's allow for flexibility on the non-essentials. Second, let's make sure our emotions match—I'd say emotions and attitudes, really—match the seriousness of the topic. So, we need to distinguish but once we do this we need to make sure our attitudes are in line with this so thinking about a topic is on, if it's on the third shelf that lower shelf let's make sure that our emotions match that in conversation that's not to say we can't get passionate about certain things i'm not saying that but let's let's create let's make sure that the gospel and Jesus are the things we're most passionate about. And if we're actually exclusively passionate about third-order issues, and the gospel doesn't light us up, the Bible's boring to us, like, there's a big, big problem there, um, a big disconnect there. Let's relax a bit about the bottom shelf until we... Are excited about the gospel again as well, and you know one test too is just when you feel your emotions rise on a topic, especially in this direction of either despising or condemning, then then you need to stop and say, okay, where is this issue? Is this on the third shelf? And if it is, I need to be really careful right now um, about the way I'm talking, the way I'm sending that email. I need to not click like on that post and share on that post and copy paste rant. Let's copy paste things, by the way. Anyway, um, <laughs> finally, let, well, I mean, I'll say this, I think it's important, right? So, these copy pasted emails or Facebook, sometimes the attitude is dripping with despising or, or condemning. And then I'm reading, and I think you're actually writing this, because it doesn't say anything. I don't have anyone in mind, by the way. It's just, this is out there, right? Um, and then at the end, it said, if you agree with this, copy and paste. I'm like, oh, you didn't. Well, that relieves me because I was like, that's really strident on that kind of thing. Um, but then I think, oh, but you shared it. You may, ah, you know, let's just be really careful um, about this kind of thing. And then finally, let's remember the gospel. Let's welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us. That's the climax, the, the culmination of where Paul is going, Romans fifteen seven. Jesus probably disagrees with us about a lot of things, and He is gracious with us. The Spirit is happy to dwell with us and patient to cultivate wisdom and growth in these matters. So, if He accepts you and your brother or sister, uh, then let's extend that warm welcome to one another, even as we talk about things that we disagree with, seeking to make a case, perhaps. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank You for Your unending mercy to us through Jesus. We're so thankful that your spirit has been poured out on your people uh, to make us a kind of new humanity that can actually have the power to treat one another with this supernatural kind of love and grace and acceptance that you show us. So we pray that your spirit will work all the more to cultivate and produce this in us. In Jesus' name, amen.